in the nursery. All right. Thank you, Christy. And thank you, kids, for the chocolate and for the happy Father's Day. We appreciate that. You know, the Old Testament story of Joseph, not only is that inspired scripture, it's one of the greatest pieces of literature in human history. It's a gripping family saga of deception, betrayal, political intrigue, and literally the fate of nations are hanging in the balance. You might even say that it's monumental. It's a big story. And we discover profound truths in Joseph's story that are still relevant to us today, thousands of years later. And through this epic monumental story, we are going to celebrate the greatness of God in our lives too. Warren Wearsby described Joseph's story as God builds a hero, saves a family, and creates a nation. And that is some truly monumental stuff. But what's even more monumental is that through that nation, God will someday bless all the families of the earth because from that family comes the real ultimate hero, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So in today's message, I want to introduce the main points that our kids are going to be discovering all this week in BBS. Now, they're going to dig deeper into each of these stories, but this morning we're just going to hit the highlights. So think of it as like an extended preview of the monumental story that our kids will be learning about this week. And the first thing this story helps us to celebrate is the greatness of God's love. The greatness of God's love. And we're going to look at Genesis 37 for that, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 37. And here we see a family portrait of Jacob's family. Now, family portraits are interesting, right? It's fun to look back at them through the years and see how people have changed, see how our kids have grown. But not all family portraits are so kind. And the first four verses of Genesis 37 paints a very disturbing family portrait for Jacob's family. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. That always causes problems, because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a a ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. So here you have Joseph. He's a, he's a talented, confident, good-looking 17-year-old man. He's got everything going on for him. Life is good. He's his daddy's favorite son, but he's got a very dysfunctional family. I mean, just think about Jacob. Jacob has two wives. That's trouble right there to begin with. And they're sisters. That makes it even worse. And then their two handmaidens are his concubines. So there are four women here. He's got children with all four of them. But Joseph was his first son by the one he really loved, Rachel. And so in, Joseph's mind, in, sorry, in Jacob's mind, that makes Joseph the rightful firstborn heir. And so that's why he gives them these luxurious ornate robes to wear. But not only did Jacob highly favor Joseph and gift him with robes, God highly favored him and gifted him with dreams. Now, in this favored status, Joseph, he was a young man of integrity and that's why Joseph, uh, Jacob trusted him, but he put him in charge of all of his brothers, 
Which again, not necessarily a good idea to put the young son in charge of all of his older brothers. And so his brothers hated him. They hated him even more. And Joseph always told the truth. He always stood up for what was right. But his brothers just thought of him as a big tattletale. So they couldn't say even anything kind to him. And you know, maybe he took a little too much pleasure in this responsibility to get to report to his dad on his big brother's questionable exploits. And we definitely see that he was a little arrogant when it came to this gift of dreams and dream interpretation that God had given him. So let's continue on in verse 5. It says that Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field, and suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you going to really reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you've had? Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? Spoiler alert, yes, they will. That, that's going to happen. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So these dreams couldn't help but get under his brother's skin. I keep thinking there's somebody standing right here. By the way, that, that uh, cactus is messing with me. I keep thinking there's somebody standing. I'm like, yes? Nope. Nope. So in this first dream, they bound down to him. In the second dream, he's elevated even above his parents. And maybe Joseph's youthful exuberance and his favored position have maybe made him a little bit arrogant. But at the very least, he's insensitive, right? He's insensitive to how this makes his brothers feel. And the result is envy, bitterness, malice in their hearts. In verse 2, it says that he brought a bad report about them to his dad. Now, we don't know what that was. We don't know what they were up to. But one thing in this story is clear. These patriarchs of the Jewish people, these men that the 12 tribes of Israel will be named after, these men who Revelations tells us their names will be written on the walls of the new Jerusalem, they're petty, vindictive, jealous, greedy. They're filled with hatred. They're even murderous. Look with me at verse 18. They see Joseph in the distance coming, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Well, one of the older brothers, Reuben, says, Guys, that's, you're going a little crazy now. We can't kill him. Maybe we can just throw him in this pit and leave him there and tell Dad that an animal ate him. We can mess up his robe, put some blood on it, and tell Dad that an animal ate him. Yeah, that's so much better, right? And so in verse 23, it says that when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robes, the robe of many colors he had on. They took him and threw him into the pit, and the pit was empty without water. Well, at least that's good. And they sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, own flesh. And his brothers agreed. So 
You know, Jacob's family could get their own reality TV show, couldn't they? And Joseph would be the one voted off the island. I mean, they put the Kardashians to shame. And maybe you think, yeah, that's my family. That's my life, ready-made for reality TV. If that's you, I pray this story can give you some hope. Because no matter how bad this story starts out, no matter how tough this story gets, it has a good ending. God sees this family through some tough times. And God is glorified. They make amends. And the world will be blessed. But if you're like me reading this story, you might be wondering, why would God bless and use such a dysfunctional family to bring His promised Messiah to the world? Why would God choose these 12 men to be the patriarchs of His people Israel? They lie, they cheat, they steal, they kill, all because of petty rivalries and jealousy. I mean, they sold their own brother into slavery. They lied to their dad and let him believe his favorite son had been eaten. Why would God use them? It's because of God's great love. And we know God's love is great because, first of all, we see that God's love is patient. God's love is patient. Psalm 103, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. So while God displays His wrath towards sin, He displays compassion, grace, and patience to sinners. He's patient with us, long-suffering. He puts up with a lot, doesn't He? Let's be honest. He puts up with a lot with us. That's because God knows who we are. He is fully aware of our sins and our shame, our faults and our failures. You can't hide anything from Him. He can see right through your masks. And He loves you anyway. God's love is patient. Secondly, God's love is unmerited. It's unmerited. Look at verses, uh, look at Romans, or listen on the screen. Romans 5 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Paul goes on to say that we were God's enemies when Jesus died for us. In Ephesians 2, he says that we were by nature children of wrath, meaning we deserved the wrath of God. Well, just two verses before that Romans 5, 8 passage, he says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God died for us while we were His enemies. Godless, powerless, deserving of wrath, sinners. That's who Jesus died for. That's who God loves. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. He doesn't wait for us to get things together and get our ducks in a row. He doesn't wait for us to to, to clean ourselves up. He comes to us in our sin, in our brokenness and in our messiness. And He rescues us. He redeems us. He reconciles us to the Father. Listen, it's true. God loves you just the way you are. But it's also true He loves you too much to leave you in the condition He finds you. God's love is a transforming love. It changes us into the people that He always meant for us to be. 
And you can't earn His love. He gives it freely. And it must be freely received. And when you receive that love in your life, you're never the same. It will change you. And that means that third, we can celebrate the greatness of God's love because God's love is freely available. It's freely available to you, to anyone. That's what grace is all about. It's God's unmerited favor available to all. Whosoever will may come. Or as Paul says in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means you. That means me. All you have to do is receive His love by faith. We can celebrate the greatness of God's love. But secondly, we can celebrate the greatness of God's presence. And we see that in verses in chapters 39 and 40. Look with me at chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guards, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in the house, and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority, didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Joseph was successful and prosperous because God was with him. God's presence was evident in Joseph's life, giving him success in everything he did to the point he became second in command of Potiphar's household. The key phrase in this that's repeated like a refrain throughout Joseph's life is that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. That's a statement of grace, isn't it? I mean, sure, Joseph was a man of integrity and honesty. He was a hard worker, but he wasn't perfect. God chose Joseph to be his servant out of grace and mercy the same way God calls each of us to follow and serve him. We don't deserve it either, do we? He calls us by His grace. You know, Joseph's story isn't... This isn't the prosperity gospel. This isn't a name it and claim it, live your best life now kind of message. That's not what the Bible teaches, and it's certainly not what the story of Joseph teaches. The Bible's clear, and Joseph's life illustrates that obeying God, yes, there's blessing and reward there, but there's also hardship. There's sacrifice. There's denial of yourself. There's persecution and maybe even death. Prosperity doesn't always look like what we think it should or what we want it to. I mean, think about it. At this point, what is Joseph being prosperous at? Being a slave, right? That's not exactly upward mobility there, is it? That's not what anybody attains to do. But despite the outward appearances, Joseph was right where God wanted him to be. He needed him to be Potiphar's slave at this moment to prepare him to be what God needed him to be down the road. Psalm 1-3 says that the, the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. Well, Joseph probably didn't feel like a, a tree planted by streams of water. He felt more like a weed in the wasteland. 
But he was right where God wanted him to be. The first two verses of Psalm 1 describe Joseph as one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night. It was by being faithful in his position, if you pardon the cliche, he bloomed where God planted him. That's why he was prosperous. That's why he earned his master's favor and trust. Because he was faithful. And as a result, God's blessings on Joseph overflowed into blessings on Potiphar and his whole household. As the text says, the blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had in the house and in the field. Now God's presence does not necessarily mean that life is a bed of roses. Following Jesus means walking down some narrow, difficult paths that few will follow. Jesus promised us the world would hate us as it hated Him and that we would even be persecuted and hated and lied about for His name's sake. That's certainly not the prosperity gospel, is it? Joseph's story makes me think of the shepherd's song where David says, you start out in green pastures by still waters, your soul is being refreshed, everything's great, but then he quickly takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. But even there, he says, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. Come for me. You're present with me in that valley of the shadow of death. And then David says, look, and, and, and in life we're surrounded by enemies. But even when we're surrounded by enemies, our good shepherd is there preparing a table before us, serving us a meal in their midst. Joseph may have thought that his dark valley was behind him, but it wasn't. He has enemies lurking in the shadows he doesn't even know about, namely Potiphar's wife, who falsely accuses him of sexual assault. Look with me at at uh, verse uh, 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious and had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. But, here it is, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And the Lord made everything that he did successful. There he is. God is present. He's at work behind the scenes. He hadn't forgotten Joseph. Yes, Joseph has been falsely accused, stripped of his robes again, and stripped of responsibility and respect, and now he's being treated like a prisoner and a predator. And God didn't spare Joseph from any of this, did he? He didn't spare Joseph this trial or this injustice, but he equipped Joseph to endure it and to prove himself just as trustworthy a prisoner as he was a slave. And like before, Joseph gets put in charge. This time he's in charge of all the other prisoners. And two of those prisoners happen to be two of Pharaoh's officials who did something to tick him off, and now they're in prison with Joseph. And Joseph gets to know the chief baker and the chief cupbearer, and they have dreams. They tell it to Joseph, and Joseph interprets the dreams. One of you is going to be forgiven and put back in your rightful place. The other of you, you're going to lose your head. Literally. And that's what happened. 
And the chief cupbearer promised. He said, Joseph, I'm going to remember you for this. And when I get back into Pharaoh's court, I'm going to plead your case before Pharaoh. But guess what he did? The minute he was scot-free out of jail, what did the cupbearer do? Forgot all about poor old Joseph. And Joseph languished in prison for two more years. But in all his waiting for God's perfect timing, he never gave up hope. He always expected that God was with him and was at work around him. David writes in Psalm 139, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave and Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. There's nowhere you can go and be outside the presence of God. He sees you. No matter what you're facing, He sees you. No matter where you are and what you're going through, God is with you. He is present. No matter the crisis no matter the heartache, no matter the fear, even through the darkest valleys in the face of life's enemies, He is present. Jesus promised to go with us to the ends of the earth. He said He would never leave us and never forsake us. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. The rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel and your Savior. Joseph certainly passed through some torrential waters. He walked through some fiery trials, but he always knew and trusted that the Lord his God, his Savior, was with him. This passage doesn't promise us that we won't go through fire, that we won't go through raging waters. It just says that when we do, God will see us through them. And He'll do that with you the way He did that with Joseph. We can celebrate the greatness of God's love, the greatness of God's presence. And third, we can celebrate the greatness of God's plan. Here we come to Joseph at the lowest point in his life, right? He's, think of all that's happening. He's been rejected by his family betrayed by his brothers, enslaved, falsely accused of a crime, imprisoned, and then forgotten there for two years. But as the old saying goes, the night is always darkest just before the dawn. So look with me at chapter 41, beginning in verse 1. At the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. And he's standing beside the Nile, and he has this weird dream. He's got these seven fat cows come out of the Nile and then seven skinny cows come up and eat the seven fat cows and he wakes up and he's really disturbed about it and he falls asleep again, has another dream and it's basically the same thing but it's sheaves of grain and so it says in verse 8 that when morning came he was troubled and he summoned all the magicians of Egypt, all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams but no one could interpret them for him. You know, trying to discern the will and mind of God can be a lot like trying to interpret a crazy dream, can it? It can be confusing. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it maybe even feels like God doesn't have a plan, that nothing is making any sense in our lives, and we feel out of control, and we're worried about tomorrow, and we wonder how God could ever take the bad things we're dealing with and ever use them for something good. But that's exactly what God promises to do. In Romans 8.28, Paul says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. And that's what exactly what Joseph is about to learn. So look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I remember my faults. Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guards. And he and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards, was with us there. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted our dreams for us. And each had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. Now, at just the right time, God prompted this cupbearer to remember Joseph. This is all according to God's plan. All timed with this dream that Pharaoh was going to have. You see, God is not slow in fulfilling His promises. His timing is just a little different than ours. But we can trust that whatever work God has begun in us, as Paul says, we can be confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can trust God's heart and His hand and His timing in our lives. He's working it all out for the good according to His plan, and we should wait in eager expectation for God's plan to unfold. That's what Joseph did. Look at verse 14. Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. Listen to what Joseph said. I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so Pharaoh tells him the two dreams. Joseph interprets them that God is going to bring seven years of prosperity to Egypt followed by seven years of famine. Now look at verse 28. It is just as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then look at verse 32. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God and he will carry it out soon. So now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land. Take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during those good years that are coming. Under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the cities so they may preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. So Joseph had waited faithfully and patiently for God's plan. And when that moment came, it came rapidly. And when that moment came, Joseph had to be ready. He had to be ready to shave and clean up and change his clothes and be before Pharaoh. He had to be ready to hear that dream and interpret it on the spot, relying on God's wisdom. And he had to be ready to present God's plan to Pharaoh for the people of Egypt and really for the future of God's people Israel. And Joseph had to be ready once again to lay aside his garments. He'd been stripped of his robes of favoritism, then his coat of responsibility, and now he has to be willing to lay aside his prison garments so that he can take on the robes of royal responsibility. And Joseph wasn't afraid to speak truthfully, just as he had do- did with Potiphar's wife, just as he did with the cupbearer and the baker. He wasn't afraid to say what God laid on his heart, no matter how it might be received. He spoke it. He spoke the truth in love 
always without apology. And he made it clear to Pharaoh that it was God who revealed the string to him. It was God who revealed his plans to him. Joseph didn't try to take the credit or the glory for himself. He wasn't giving Pharaoh his ideas or his opinion. He was revealing God's plan that God was about to do something truly monumental in Egypt. I read this and thought about this this past week. Couldn't help but think of our own circumstances as a country. We had several years of prosperity and economic growth. Things seemed to be going good. And then 2020 came. And we had pandemic. And we had social unrest. And we had divisions. And then there was war and shortages and inflation and gas prices through the roof. And I can't help but wonder what God's plan is for us now. How will God's perfect plan unfold for us? How will God use whatever it is you're going through in your life? How is God going to use that for the good? How is He going to use that to bring glory to His name and further His kingdom purposes? None of us want to go through times of famine. Oh, we love the times of prosperity, the times of plenty, but we dread the times of want. But God spent all those years of hardship preparing Joseph for such a time as this. And Joseph is made second in command of Egypt and giving an unprecedented opportunity to use his gifts and use his skills to not only save the people of Egypt, but to save his own family as well. We've seen this morning the greatness of God's love, the greatness of God's presence, no matter what we face, the greatness of God's plan. Even when life doesn't make sense to us, God is on His throne, God has a plan, God is at work, and God is with us. And finally, this morning we can celebrate the greatness of God's power. We will see through the rest of Joseph's story that God has the power to surprise us. Now, I used to think that when we were surprised by God, you know, He works a miracle, He answers a prayer we've been praying, He provides for us in some unexpected way. I used to think that when we'd be surprised by that, that was like a show of doubt or something. And maybe, maybe there can be a reflection of some doubt in that, but I also think there can be an expression of wonder and awe. I mean, have you ever been just surprised, caught by surprise by an especially beautiful sunset? Has that ever happened to you? Doesn't the sun set every day? Is it really a surprise that the sun is setting tonight? No, but sometimes the beauty of it just catches us off guard. It grabs our attention. It captures our hearts with awe. That's the way the power of God is in our lives. When we take the time to notice it, it's not surprising that God answers the prayer, but we're just in awe that He loves us and He cares about us and that He works in our lives and in Joseph's story, we see the surprise of God's great power to provide. We see the power to provide. You know, Joseph grew up with plenty. He grew up never wanting a thing, but then he lost it all. And then he lived this roller coaster life of uncertainty. But once God brought his plan for Joseph's life to fruition, that's when Joseph discovered the power of God to provide. God gave him a new job, a new title a new name, a new family. And through his leadership, God would provide for Egypt and the surrounding peoples. He'd provide for them through seven years of famine. And among those who came to Egypt for grain were some familiar faces that Joseph hadn't seen in a long time, probably thought he'd never see again. His brothers came to buy grain. 
And guess what they did? They bowed down in front of Joseph, just as he had dreamed. Now, to make a long story short, Joseph learned through his encounter with his long-lost brothers that not only does God have the power to provide, but even greater than that, God has the power to forgive and the power to restore. The power to forgive and restore. Now, Joseph struggled at first with this unexpected reunion with his brothers, but in the end, he extended forgiveness and grace to them. And in a tearful revelation of his identity, he sought restoration with his brothers. You know, he literally could have executed his vengeance on them. He could have been off with their heads and nobody would have batted an eye. But instead, he extended the forgiveness and the grace that God had given him to his brothers. Look with me as we finish up Joseph's story in chapter 45. And I'm just going to read uh, the first 15 verses here. So his brothers are before him there in Joseph's palace. And it says, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they couldn't answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's going to be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near to me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, all you have, there I will sustain you. For there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. And then he says to his brothers, Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulders. And Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Joseph came to realize that all of his trials and his misfortune and even the injustice wrought against him, God used to work toward his divine plan. That's the surprising power of God. To take evil and use it for good. That's the surprise of Easter morning when God takes death and defeat and turns it into life and victory. Or as Joseph later puts it in, Chapter 50, when talking to his brothers again, he said, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What a powerful picture of, a, of the gospel. What a monumental moment in Joseph's story that points us to the most monumental moment in human history as Jesus, God the Son, perfect and sinless, hung on Calvary's cross, taking our sin and shame upon Himself. And He said to the Father, Father, forgive these who are killing Me. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus might as well have said, Father, 
take what they intend for harm and use it for the ultimate good to accomplish your purpose, the saving of many lives. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The invitation this morning is so simple. If you need to experience the greatness of God's power in your life, the power to forgive your sins, the power to restore you to a right relationship with God, the power to provide eternal life for you, I invite you to come in a moment as we sing. Come and place your trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. Not relying on yourself. He doesn't ask you to get it right. He doesn't ask you to understand everything first. He doesn't ask you to go and clean things up. He says, come now just as you are and let me change you from the inside out. Let me display my glorious power through you. And you can experience the greatness of God's love. Freely given and freely received. You can know His presence that will never leave you and never forsake you. How else might you need to celebrate God's great love and presence this morning? Maybe God is calling you to unite with this church family. Maybe you've been worshiping with us. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've been baptized, but you say, you know, God is leading my family here. This is where I want to celebrate the greatness of God's plan for my family. Or maybe this morning you need to come and surrender yourself anew and afresh to God's plan for your life. To God's power to provide. Whatever God is speaking to you this morning, would you be obedient? The best way we can celebrate God's greatness is by obeying Him when He speaks to us. Let's stand and pray together. You come as God leads you. Father, we are so thankful that You are a good, good Father. You're a Father whose love and power are so great, whose plan is so perfect, whose presence never leaves us. Thank You for being that God for us. Lord, help us to strive to be faithful to You, to strive to trust You, to lean on You and not on our own understanding. Lord, no matter what anybody here today is facing or dealing with, whatever crisis is in their life, God, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them and help them to trust that You are with them and You will be at work in their lives. Father, if there's anyone here today that needs to place their trust in You for salvation, for eternal life and forgiveness, I pray they would come today and not leave this place until they know that the Lord is with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.